Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Legendary writer, Kentucky writer James Still, is still today, after his death of many years, looked upon as iconic and uh, one that uh, all writers, authors, poets, essayists, fiction and nonfiction writers in Kentucky uh, revere and admire so much his work for so many years. We're at the Kentucky Book Fair at the Kentucky Horse Park, the Alltech Arena, and we have a, an array of um, celebrated authors um, joining us from across the nation. One of those is Carol Bogus, who has uh, spent considerable time in her writing life dedicated to uh, learning about and writing the complete biography of James Steele. I'll ask her to maybe clarify that if that's going to be possible. But Carol, uh, so welcome uh, uh, to you and, and to our podcast. Tell us a little bit about where you are today, um, your association with Mr. Steele uh, while you were in school here and beyond. So just talk a little bit about uh, Carol Bogus. All right, thank you very much and thank you for having me here. I'm glad to be here. Um, it's wonderful to be in a place where there's so many eager readers and people who want to know more about books. So to tell you a little bit about myself, uh, I'm originally from North Carolina and I came to University of Kentucky to do my PhD work in English and uh, I was already an interested reader and somewhat of a, of a would-be scholar for American literature and I was especially interested in Southern literature. So it's not surprising, I guess, when I got here that um, I, I had never read James Still, but he was around and he was around in the name of a scholarship that people would come from Appalachian colleges to study in the summer at UK. It was called the James Still Scholarship. And um, so I got, to, I got to know him that way, as, first as a person, and I had not actually read anything by him. So as soon as I heard him perform, and uh, I'm not quite sure, it's one of the hotels around um, the Grants Park, I think, was the first place I heard him. I thought, wow, who is this? And so I saw, I knew him first as a personality rather than as a writer. But of course, very quickly, I got to, uh, I started reading his works and I decided that um, I, I would actually pursue him as a dissertation topic. So I worked with John Coelty in the Department of English at uh, UK and I did my dissertation on River of Earth. And in the process of that, I did several interviews of James Still. So when that was completed, and I believe that was in 1994, um, about a decade, I met him about a decade before he died, but we became friends. And that's when I began to meet a lot of his peop the people he knew, uh, people at Heinemann, and just people who admired him or were curious about him. And so, um, he liked to talk. Anyone who knew James Still in his later life realized how much he liked to talk. And I liked to listen. So that was a good combination. Um, and when he, when he did die in 2001, uh, I knew enough about him and had 
had enough to do with him that I was not really surprised when at his memorial service, Mike Mullins from Hyman Settlement School introduced me to to the group to talk to um, as his biographer. But then the die was cast. <laughs> I was his biographer. And um, so I've spent the next 15 years really writing this biography. And I always excuse myself because, first of all, I had my own life and my own children and, and my own career as a, as a teacher at Mars Hill University, which is near Asheville. Um, but I also, I wanted to do a really good job of this book. And he had so many materials and so many in so many different collections, most of them in Kentucky, that I really thoroughly enjoyed it, but it did take a long time. So now the book is out and I'm I'm pleased that I can share him with you. What do you remember about your first meeting with him? Well, uh, the first meeting I just listened and I was just kind of kind of overwhelmed. And why? Why? Because he had such a presence when he spoke. Uh, and of course, he read as well as speaking. And, and I was in, so I was really introduced to his writing as, as speaking, as language, rather than as reading it on the written on the page. And I think I was just, I was just fascinated by how poetic his prose is. And um, so that, that was my first enticement. And then later I had a friend from Australia come to um, Lexington to visit me. And I was looking for things to, to do, to take her to. And he, came, he was coming back and he came to UK. And um, I said, how would you like to go hear this older writer uh, read some? And she said, sure. So we went and Actually, the acoustics were not great. It was, there were a lot of people in the room, and I don't think she really understood a lot. She was Australian, but she was Oxford educated, and you know, the, the dialect was a little bit of a problem, but she was so fascinated. And uh, so when we were walking home, she said, why don't you write your dissertation on that man? And I thought, why not? And so that, that was kind of the inspiration for me to get involved. For those uh, listening who don't know about Heinemann and the Heinemann Settlement School and James Still, Still's connection to Heinemann, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, he came, actually he's not from Kentucky, although he is totally a Kentucky author, but he came from Alabama and he moved to, he, he first went to college at Lincoln Memorial University, then he went to Vanderbilt and then he went to University of Illinois. So it took him for a little while, but in the 30s then, he was looking for work, and he ended up at Hyman Settlement School in 1932, the first summer, um, and became their librarian in 1933, and worked there for basically off and on for the rest of his life, and certainly lived in Hyman. He was better known for um, a house, a log house that was given to him for his lifetime by uh, the Ambergie family, Jethro Ambergie. And so many people who knew him saw him there at the, at the log house. He didn't like to call it a cabin, uh, but it was a log house. 
But he actually lived much of his life in Hyman, which was nine miles away from that log house. So his association with Hyman and the Hyman Settlement School and Knott County, Kentucky was really, well, he sometimes described himself as trapped by it. But I don't think it meant trapped in a negative way. It was more that he was one with the place. He became one with it. And um, he was greatly revered at Hyman and would appear every summer at the Hyman um, Writers' Workshop. So many people got to know him there. Did he do the majority of his writing at what period in his life? Um, did he begin to write after he arrived in Heinemann, or, or was it later on? Well, he was writing a little bit, even, even when he was a student. Um, he, did a couple of, he did a play and a couple of uh, little essays that eventually got published. But he really didn't start writing um, as a, you know, a lot until he was working at Heinemann. And he liked Heinemann because he could kind of hide away and, and write in his spare time. So in the late 30s, he began publishing poetry. And in the summertime, he liked Hyman also because in the summertime then, he could go to writers' workshops. And um, he went to Yaddo. He went to, the first one he went to was in North Carolina, actually. Um, but he, he liked doing that because he would meet writers and begin to sort of build a connections. But he really started writing um, in 37, 38, and 39, he published River of Earth in 1940. So between 1937 and 1941, he had a book of poetry, the novel River of Earth, and uh, a book of short stories published by Viking Press in New York. So he was really, he wasn't known in the mountains so much. He was known in New York. Then he went to the war, and when he came back, Everything was different in the mountains, um, and he was different. So it for he kind of went quiet for a long time, and then he did a few of his actually his most well-known stories, the nest. People here have talked about the nest, and Mrs. Razor. Those were all both uh, published after he got back from he was in Africa during the war. Uh, but he, um, he really didn't write very much or didn't publish very much until the late 60s when there was kind of a revival of Appalachian, interest in Appalachian writing. And then he became a star. And, and so he continued to write, did some uh, folk, folklore, folk writing, children's books, uh, different kinds of books. But I would say his greatest accomplishment was clearly River of Earth and uh, the writings that he was doing in the, in the 40s. When did you read River of Earth? Was it when you were doing your uh, study at the University of Kentucky? Was it your dissertation or what, what? It was, yeah, it was my dissertation. So how did the writing in the Appalachian dialect first strike you? Uh, the, the dialect that James Still wrote, seeing it on the page and reading it as a reader, not hearing it unless you read it and heard it in your mind? Good question. And I think some people are momentarily put off by the dialect because um, it, the words do, some of the words do look different. He doesn't have a heavy dialect. It's, it's possible to, uh, if you have like a, 
a kind of a dictionary or something of dialect, you can easily find out what they mean, and there's not a lot of them. But I think it can be off-putting if you haven't, if you don't know the dialect and you haven't done a lot of reading of dialectal literature. Um, for me, it wasn't difficult because I live in the mountains of Western North Carolina. I was I didn't grow up there, but I live there, and so it seems natural to me. Um, I, I teach the book a lot, and for students, most of the time, if they're put off at first, they just kind of, I, I read some to them, and then they begin to connect the sounds with the, with the words. So I don't think it's a big problem for most students. I did have one Japanese student one time, and Japanese was her first language, and she struggled with it. But I think for most people, it's just kind of getting over that hump, and I think uh, it's not difficult. In, in your teaching, besides River of Earth, do you teach a number of other of James Steele's work? I do sometimes, um, but I when I teach Appalachian literature, I always use River of Earth as kind of, um, you know, a, a hallmark, of a, sort of a, a beginning point of what I call the middle 20th century, where we're moving from 19th century of um, sort of stereotypical local color kind of description of mountain people into a, a regional realism, which uh, James Still, Jesse Stewart, Harriet Arnaud, those people kind of initiated that. And so I usually use River of Earth and then some other poetry and a few short stories. Um, but uh, I like to teach him in the context of Appalachian literature and how it's developed. Some have uh, suggested that um, Mr. Still created uh, close to a perfect novel in River of Earth, mm -hmm. that it uh, is written with a protagonist in mind, uh, uh, place and setting, and mm -hmm. uh, there is a plot um, of sorts. Um, why has it impressed you over these years that it is a, a novel that is to be read and, and understood from, from the technique of writing a novel standpoint? Oh, okay. Um, well, it's not what you'd call a thickly plotted novel. It's not the kind of novel where you get to one chapter and you can't wait to start the next chapter. It's much more experiential, I would say. And um, it's kind, I describe it sometimes as like a, a, a necklace of pearls where there, everything's related, but each chapter is a kind of a gem of its own. Um, so I think it is the classic Appalachian, uh, certainly 20th century book, and has Im impressed um, a lot of people, influenced a lot of people because of the writing itself, but also because of, uh, Wilma Dykeman once said, Appalachian literature is as unique as churning butter and as universal as getting born. And James Still's River of Earth does both of those things. Uh, if, if you read especially the chapter where the title comes from, uh, family is going to walk, and as they walk, the protagonist, who's also the narrator, tells what's happening around him. And it is so detailed and so beautifully written, very poetic. And he just notices all the details of the place, the place names, the, the things that are happening, um, like an itinerant preacher is happening at, 
as it's preaching at the church. And so you get a lot of very beautiful detail from, through the eyes of the boy. And then you get into the sermon of the, that they attend. And immediately you're kind of moved to this very, very metaphysical kind of big universal questions. And he can do that so beautifully. And then the little boy's listening to the sermon and like a lot of children, he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he's back in the real world. And so we're kind of moving between worlds and I think it's, it's masterful. I think an, an interesting question, um, and I'm not sure, I, I know he was asked this. I'm not sure I ever heard him say this or uh, if he wrote about how autobiographical River of Earth was and how much he applied it to his growing up, as you said, in Alabama mm -hmm. before moving to Kentucky, but still Appalachia, still the South. Mm -hmm. what, what did you learn from him about that? Well, I think there are lots of things about his childhood that are reflected in his novels. Um, in fact, Silas House uh, edited a, a, his novel, Chinaberry. Uh, Silas sometimes refers to it as a memoir because it really does seem like it is his life. Um, and so he's, he's constantly doing that, taking his own childhood and kind of adapting it into his novels. And sometimes it's poetry and a wonderful poem um, those I want in heaven with me should there be such a place and it's all about the people of his childhood so he he did that a lot but the story is not his story um, there are many similarities like the family the size of the family where the narrator comes in the family there's an older sister and but he's the oldest boy there are things little details like that that are very similar to James Still his family moved around a lot he, they, were, they grew up in an agrarian area that was in the process of becoming, um, you know, just changing into an industrial area. And the same thing was true in Kentucky. So um, in Alabama, the industry was textiles. In Kentucky, it was coal. But you see, there's that, there's that kind of parallel experience of being in a transition life. So there are lots of similarities, but uh, it's very much fiction. I might have told you in our conversations about a project that we have in 2018, reading all the King's Men mm -hmm. and hoping that people will read along with us and remember what a great American novelist, poet, essayist, Robert Penn Warren was, mm -hmm. a native of Guthrie. Um, our very own Wendell Berry, on, sitting only a, a few tables from you, a few right. chairs from you, um, continues to, to write uh, about place mm -hmm. uh, and about Kentucky. He, it's um, so exciting that uh, even in his um, um, experience, I'm not going to mention the decade that he might be in, um, but he has a new book out that mm -hmm. he's here at the Kentucky Book Fair with uh, called A Loading Brush. Uh, where do you think Mr. Still will will be placed in the um, in, in Southern literature, along with not only Kentuckians like Warren and Barry, and and we could go on and mention many others, but in Southern literature, and um, the great novelist um, like Faulkner and many others. Where will he end up in the um, in the work that someone would point to and say he's one of the best? 
Well, of course, that's, that's a great question, and I, I don't really know the answer. I certainly would hope that he would be one of the greatest or be, be known as. I think he was, clearly. And he definitely has influenced many, many other younger writers, uh, one of them being Wendell Berry. Uh, of course, we don't think of Wendell Berry now as a younger writer, but he was a student of Stills at one point. And so his influence is, is massive um, and deep. Will his books last? I certainly hope so, because I think, I think he does belong up there with, um, well, for example, frequently uh, River of Earth is compared to Rapes of Wrath. And I think it's a, just my personal opinion is that it's a it's more beautifully written book. Uh, although this, it's a similar kind of story of searching, uh, you know, a poor people who are uh, poor or have difficulty going places to find a better life. So there, there are a lot of similarities to other books in the in that period. And um, I do hope that all of his works uh, last, uh, particularly his poetry and River of Earth. And um, he was a he was a master. And as you probably know, he was known as the Dean of Appalachian writer writing. So I don't I don't think that he will be lost in Appalachia. But whether or not uh, the whole nation will see him as one of the greats, I do hope so. Well, Carol Bogus, thank you so much for talking with us. I know you're very pleased and proud of this work. Well, I'm yes, I'm glad to have it done. I think it's a, a marvelous book. I think that. Um, University Press needs to be uh, applauded for making it look so good. I just hope it reads well. <laughs> well, it's going to be available, and we thank you for uh, being our guest at the Kentucky Book Fair and uh, hope uh, that uh, we will cross paths again soon. Thank you very much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.